Actor Alan Alda once said, It isn't necessary to be rich and famous to be happy. It's only necessary to be rich. (laughs) The philosophy of our culture is simple. Money buys happiness. The fact is, it doesn't, does it? Money can buy many pleasures, but leaving you feeling empty. The Bible teaches us, Ecclesiastes, we're continuing our study there. The Bible teaches us the, the pleasures money can buy cannot satisfy the soul. Despite what our culture tells us. The 2009 economic crisis brought an interesting phrase into the headlines. The phrase was toxic assets. Toxic assets. Toxic assets are one of the factors that certainly contributed to our financial crisis. You know that those assets were loans. Somebody owed the bank money, but the house that secured the loan had dropped in value, and now the loan was more than the house was worth. So when banks took it over, it became a toxic asset, which is really a liability, isn't it? Toxic assets can also be true spiritually. A toxic asset is anything we think is an asset in our lives, but actually hurts us spiritually. A house, or a car, or a business, a job, can be great assets for you, for me, unless you allow them to take God's place in your life, and you live for them, and you trust in them. In that case, they become toxic assets. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we continue our study here. Look at verse 1, and then we'll drop down to verse 11, because Ecclesiastes 2, 1, and 11, those two verses are like bookends on the text that we're looking at this morning. So they give us the thesis, if you will. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. Solomon writes, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. And then you drop down to the other bookend on this passage, verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There's our expression of meaninglessness and chasing the wind that is repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And he says, and there was no profit, no gain under the sun from all that I had done. Solomon decided to test himself with pleasure. He set out intentionally to enjoy himself with all that money could buy. He attempted to find out if the pleasures of money could satisfy his soul. It was a real test, he says. And he discovered they could not. In fact, they became toxic assets in his life. And the Apostle Paul said the same thing 
in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, he wrote, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Now, money can buy many pleasures, but many have found out too late that all those pleasures become toxic to finding true happiness in the Lord. They take us away from the real meaning of life. And that is found only in God. And you remember that is where Solomon will end up at the end of the book. So let's examine Solomon's test, if you will, and see what we can learn about the pleasures that money can buy. Principle number one, then. Money buys parties that never satisfy the soul. Verses 2 and 3. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. People seem to be happiest at parties. The preacher observed that people laugh and joke. I mean, that's why you have a party, right? And drink and have fun in life. So, he said, observing all of that, he set himself to test and find out if that kind of happiness really has a lasting value and really produces lasting happiness and abundant life. The word translated pleasure here, the Hebrew word, means a state of happiness that comes from entertaining our body with our bodies with sensual stimuli. I use the word party or partying more sort of as a summary word for looking for the fun in life. A person goes to a party to stimulate their bodily senses with laughter, jokes, comforts, sorts of the, the sorts of activities that make us feel good. I mean, that's why you go, right? We dance, we smile, we have a good time, we interact, we talk about pleasant things. We feel good about ourselves. We feel happy. So, the preacher said he did all of those things to find out if it was true lasting happiness, and he found that all the laughter ultimately was, what did he say? Foolishness or madness. It left him feeling even emptier than he had been before the party. Alcohol, of course, is supposed to make people feel happy. So the preacher tried to find happiness in wine. He qualifies his test here. You see the phrase that he puts in there by saying that he tried to find happiness in alcohol while maintaining a state where his mind was still guided by wisdom. That was his intention. <laughs> all right. In other words, he didn't get drunk and lose all of his senses. He, was, he tried to be moderate. He tried to find happiness in the alcohol while controlling it all with wisdom as part of his test. Of course, I suppose those who like to drink might think that he had ruined the test because 
The point was not to feel anything. I don't know. But that's what he set out to do. Find out if this really brings happiness, but I've got to stay in control because I've got to test this theory out. He didn't lose himself in the bottle. But what he found was that the alcohol didn't bring true happiness at all. So the preacher set out to buy all the foolish things that money can buy. He says to see the good that people can experience during the few days that you have on this earth. Because that's all we've got. So I want to find the good that you can experience in those few days. So I'm going to do everything that will make me feel good. The Hebrew word for good means more than just sensual pleasure. It's the word that was commonly used for good morning in the Hebrew language. Basically a greeting, a wishing of goodness to people. He wanted to find out if, if we can experience true joy, if we can experience goodness and happiness and beauty through the party life, if you will. And what he discovered is that all of the pleasures in this world, no matter how expensive they are, no matter how exotic they are, do not lead people to experience real goodness in life. People pursue the most expensive pleasures, but in the end, he says, their foolishness, their madness. People will pay top dollar for anything as long as they think Well, this will make me happy. Taiwanese coffee farmers have long been pestered by Formosan rock monkeys, which eat the ripest berries from coffee plants, and then they spit out the seeds. But now, the farmers are collecting these half-chewed seeds, and they are roasting them to produce a coffee that connoisseurs consider an absolute delicacy. Not only does the monkey save the farmers the trouble of peeling the fruits, the partially chewed seeds yield a sweeter coffee, quote-unquote, with a vanilla-like scent because of the monkey's contribution. (laughs) Adds more than flavor, though. It also adds value. Because the rare blend sells for $56 a pound and people are buying it up. The preacher would say that money buys us the rarest and most expensive pleasures that will stimulate our taste buds, but in the end, we're drinking monkey chewed coffee beans. That's the reality. It's foolish. Second principle, money builds projects that never satisfy the soul. Verse 4, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Now, King Solomon was a great builder. We know that from archaeology. He used his wealth to build many impressive projects in the land of Israel. For example, here is a picture of one of three pools that Solomon built, each succeeding the other, and the the water flow would go from one pool to the next, and the cascading waterfalls 
went through the three pools. Altogether, the pools held over 40 million gallons of water. Around these pools were, were beautiful parks full of gardens and trees and vineyards. This is in the Bethlehem area, south of Jerusalem. And this was just one of many, many projects that Solomon set himself out to accomplish in the land of Israel, using his wealth to build these wonderful projects. Now, it seems like a, well, maybe it doesn't seem like a reasonable use of money, but projects anyway seem like a reasonable use of our money. Money can buy us the labor of many people that can build projects that, that are fulfilling. There is something fulfilling about projects and accomplishments. We look at the finished products with pride. We take pleasure in such products, projects. I mean, that, that seems logical. Certainly, it's better than the party scene for finding fulfillment in life. And even on a small scale, we all have projects, right? We want to make our houses nice. And our yard's looking great. We've got projects that we're working on. Maybe we buy a camp or a cottage and we fix that up and we take joy in the projects that we are doing. Do we get pleasure from these projects? Sure. Sure, we get pleasure from these projects. We feel accomplishment. We feel pride, if you will, in accomplishing something. Well, Solomon set out to find out if using his money to build these kinds of projects would bring the happiness and meaning he sought in life. The answer? No, it did not. Momentary pleasure, felt good, but didn't last. Even Such worthwhile projects as these did not bring lasting happiness or true fulfillment in life. Set yourself for the projects. This is better than the party scene, but it still won't give you fulfillment in life. We are not what we own, despite what our world says. Several years ago, Millard Fuller of Habitat for Humanity addressed the National Press Club on public radio. He recalled a workshop at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary with 200 pastors in attendance. And the assembled pastors quickly pointed to greed and selfishness as the reason why churches don't have more to give and to use for ministry because of people's greed and selfishness. Millard Fuller then asked this seemingly innocent question. Is it possible, now he's addressing pastors here, is it possible for a person to build a house so large that it's sinful in the eyes of God? Raise your hand if you think so. And all 200 pastors put up their hands. Absolutely, it's possible to build a house that is so large it is sinful in the eyes of God. Okay, said Millard, then can you tell me, at exactly what size, the precise square footage, if you will, a certain house becomes sinful to occupy. Dead silence. Could have heard a pin drop. It's hard to make pastors quiet. 
No sound. And finally, a small, quiet voice spoke up from the back of the room. When it's bigger than mine. (laughs) Yeah. When it's bigger than mine. The point of Ecclesiastes, and all the way through here, we will be looking at this comparison. The point of Ecclesiastes has a New Testament counterpoint. And 1 Timothy 6 is the New Testament counterpoint to Ecclesiastes 2. And in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, Paul writes, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, you might not consider yourself rich. I might not consider myself rich as I look at my culture here. But compared to people in Somalia... Every one of us in this room is rich. So it's just a relative thing anyway. But we find here three principles to remember as we use our wealth in this world. Principle number one, fix your hope on God. Make God the center of your lives and seek fulfillment in Him. That's the only way to find true abundant life. Second, don't become proud of your projects in life and your accomplishments. The the problem, you see, with all of the projects that we accomplish here on earth in the few days that we have, as he repeatedly reminds us, the problem with it is that we become conceited. We become proud of what we accomplish. And when that happens, God is no longer the center of our lives. We will lose any lasting happiness from those projects we will feel empty in the end. Because you notice that when Solomon set the test, he kept saying, I built this for myself. Did you notice the repeated self here? So when we do it for ourselves, it won't provide lasting true fulfillment. God must be at the center of everything for there to be fulfillment. So that's why Millard Fuller's question is a good question. How big is a sinful house? Well, bigger than mine. Not an adequate answer. How big is a sinful house? Well, I'm not going to answer that for you. You know why? Because that's too easy. That becomes legalistic. It all depends upon you and your relationship with God. If your house is becoming more important than God... It's sinful. If your projects and the things you devote yourself to, even good things, lots of good things, become more important than God in your life, it's sinful. Because it consumes your life and takes away from fixing your hope on God and what He wants you to do. And anything that does that becomes sinful because it's self-centered instead of God-centered. But finally, and this is very important to put in here, because the Bible is always balanced about these things. Notice that we are to enjoy the things that God gives us in life. Did you notice that in 1 Timothy 6, 17? God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, 
to enjoy. James wrote, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So not to enjoy his gifts is sin, just as much as becoming proud is sin. Think of it this way. As an earthly father, I give my two daughters gifts. If my daughters take those gifts and they throw them in the trash and they refuse to use them or enjoy them at all, how does that make me feel as a father? I don't take pleasure in that, right? I feel rejected. I feel hurt. But if they take those gifts and they enjoy them, then I get pleasure in the gifts that they are enjoying. So it is with God. God gives us gifts. He is our Father. He gives us gifts. And He takes pleasure in us when we take pleasure in Him and His gifts. And when we appreciate and thank Him for them. That's why Thanksgiving should be every day of the week for Christians. So if you want to make God happy, then be happy with the gifts He gives to you. Doing all these things for yourself will not bring lasting happiness. Enjoying God's gifts by using them to accomplish things in this life will bring lasting happiness because then our lives are centered on bringing Him pleasure. We bring God pleasure when we take pleasure in God. We take pleasure in God when we enjoy and use His gifts to us. We are happiest when we are happy in Him. That'll be where Ecclesiastes ends up. And that is the New Testament counterpoint to Ecclesiastes 2. Third principle. Money collects possessions that never satisfy the soul. Verse 7. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. The nation of Israel straddled the major north-south trade routes in the ancient world. David, Solomon's father, had made Israel militarily powerful. And so they could control those trade routes. And so what Solomon did, he was a brilliant economist, if you will. He was a brilliant uh, businessman. What he did was he collected tariffs or taxes on any trade that came through Israel from the north on its way to Egypt in the south. And then he collected taxes on any trade that came from Egypt on its way north to Mesopotamia. So he was collecting taxes both ways. And everybody had to pay these taxes. And so Israel came wealth, became wealthier as a nation than they ever had been or ever would be again because of Solomon's practices. He accumulated this wealth. And 
He says he also accumulated male and female servants who catered to his every need. He amassed large herds and flocks. He gathered in his bank account large amounts of silver and gold, along with the treasures of kings and provinces. They came from all the nations around the world, around that area of the world, I should say, the Middle East. They came to meet with Solomon, and they paid tribute to him. He developed a, an entertainment system with singers and musicians and actors and actresses through the Hollywood of his area. God had given him all of this wealth and power, and he set out to use it. By the way, on a side note, because if you are reading the King James, you will have a very different translation of verse 8. Whereas the NIV and the New American Standard talk of his concubines, and we know that Solomon had many, and that was not God's desire. It was sinful. But they talk about Solomon's concubines, but the King James talks about musical instruments. And that's because the Hebrew word that is used here in verse 8 is not used anywhere else in the entire Old Testament. And so we're not entirely sure exactly what it means. It can mean a harem. But Jewish writers argued that it meant musical instruments. And so the King James follows the, the lead of the Jewish writers. And the Talmud argued that it referred to treasure chests or sedan chairs. You know, those things you see in the movies where the king rides on the sedan chair. So that's possible too. Whatever the meaning, the point of Solomon is clear. He enjoyed all the trappings that wealth could bring to him, that wealth could possess. He had every possession that he could possibly want. The, the result... They were nothing more than chasing the wind, he says. Wealth will never satisfy the soul. We will not find fulfillment in our possessions. You know, you buy that new thing. It feels good. But two months later, it's not new anymore. Possessions will never provide fulfillment. All right, once again, we look to the New Testament counterpoint to Ecclesiastes' point, and that's 1 Timothy 6 again in the New Testament, where Paul continued, and he wrote in the next verses following the ones we just looked at, he said, Instruct the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life, Indeed, you want to really live? It won't be by your possessions. You want to have life indeed? It won't be by what you own. It won't be by the toys you have. Wealth will never satisfy the soul. Accumulating possessions will leave us unhappy and unfulfilled in the end. God tells us to be what? Generous and share with others what God has given to us. That's the way we store up a heavenly treasure, he says, that will last. If you want a legacy, then give to others and your legacy will live on into the future. But if you cling to and hang on to everything that you can, 
it won't last anyway. And your legacy will be one of selfishness. And it won't be fulfilling. Basically, Paul tells us that if we really want to live in this life now, under the sun is Ecclesiastes, we will find happiness in giving to others and sharing what God has given to us. So here is the principle. Enjoy what God gives you and give as God enables you. This is the way to find true happiness in life. Now you are really living, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. This is life indeed. Hoarding your possessions will leave you unfulfilled, unhappy, miserable, and everybody else around you too. Kevin Arney tells the following story in his book, Seismic Shifts. He tells about a little boy who sat in the church nursery one Sunday, and he was watching him. And this little boy had two balls, one in each hand, and he had toys under his arms, and then he had three balls that he kept inside of his legs, like this, in the middle of the nursery room floor. And kids would come around, and they would want one of the balls but he wouldn't give up any of his balls or any of his toys. The problem was that he had very great difficulty hanging on to them because they'd roll away or, you know, he couldn't keep them all corralled. And so, for a number of minutes, this little boy sat in the middle of this floor, and when, anybody, when any of the other kids came near, he would growl and snarl at them, Get away! As he tried desperately to hang on to each one of the toys. And the other little boys and girls started circling like vultures. And every now and then, a toy or ball would roll away and they'd grab it. And he'd be angry. And Kevin said he was about to step in, because nursery workers aren't, you know, they're supposed to be good about these things. But he thought, no, he's just going to watch for a minute. And then it dawned on him. This little boy was absolutely miserable. He was totally unhappy. He writes, the little boy was not having any fun at all. There was no cheer within ten yards of this kid. Not only was he unhappy, but all the other kids seemed sad as well. His selfishness created a black hole that sucked all of the joy out of that nursery. Right? And then his parents came for him. And he had to leave them all there anyway. And that's life, isn't it? All those possessions get left. And your kids get to use them. (laughs) Somebody else does, whatever, but you can't take them with you, right? See, enjoy what God gives you. That's fine. Give thanks, but give as God enables you. Don't hoard. Because when we cling to and we try to hang on to everything, what happens to us inside? We start to become bitter. We start to become tense and nervous. I mean, I might lose that bank account. I might lose that whatever it is. Maybe I can't hang on to this. And all of a sudden, life gets lived around all of that. And there's no happiness. 
And everybody in the family sucked into that black hole. There's no life indeed in that process, Paul says. Fourth principle. Money produces success that never satisfies the soul. Verse 9. Then, he says, I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me, and all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. So the preacher says he became great. He surpassed all who came before him in Jerusalem, including all of the Canaanite kings that came along before King David took over Jerusalem. God had truly given Solomon everything. Now, you remember the story, right? When Solomon became king, and he talked with God, and God said, I'll give you whatever you want, and he said, I'm not going to ask for possessions, I'm not going to ask for wealth, I'm going to ask for wisdom. So God gave him wisdom as his gift, and then God also gave him wealth. Right? Right? Wonderful gifts he gave to Solomon. Whatever he wanted was his for the taking. He did not deny himself any pleasure he wanted. He was successful in everything he set out to do. He took pleasure in all of that success, in that labor. I mean, there have been many wealthy men who followed God in the Bible. Job and Abraham, for example. But Solomon was as successful as any man could hope to be in this life. Yet even all his success, he concludes in verse 11, what? Thus I considered all my activities, which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Once again, the New Testament counterpoint is 1 Timothy 6. Paul writes, But godliness actually is a means of great gain. That's profit. That's profitability that he's talking about. When accompanied by contentment. We sang about this in one of our songs. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. You probably saw the news clip this week of the Canadian couple. They won more than $11 million in the Canadian lottery. And then they gave almost all of it away. Violet and Alan Large, 75 years of age, live in a modest home in Nova Scotia. They believe that they already had everything they needed in life. So after winning $11 million, they sat down and quietly drew up a list of worthy causes and began giving the money away. They started with their families, then they gave to hospitals and churches and various charity groups, all very quietly until the news media got a hold of it. They did keep $200,000 for themselves in case of an emergency. At 75, I guess they figured 200000 would cover most emergencies. Now, Violet has been battling cancer, and her chemo treatments have left her with no hair, and she's, she's struggling, of course. She's very weak. But they said they are 
content with life. Allen told the reporter, money cannot buy happiness. So that's why they decided to give it away. Sounds quite biblical to me. The pleasures money can buy cannot satisfy your soul. You can hang on to it. You can try and keep it, cling to it. It won't satisfy. But God can. And we can find contentment in him. No matter our circumstances. No matter what's going on in life. There is true and lasting happiness in the Lord. Our only problem is that we try to find happiness everywhere else, right? Instead of in the Lord. And what he gives and works in our lives. And the result is vanity of vanities is chasing the wind. C.S. Lewis wrote in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased with the stuff of this life. Like many American Christians, Keith Taylor has benefited from the generosity of others in his life. For example, while Keith was attending graduate school in Tennessee, his car broke down, and the subsequent repair bill caused him to be short on his rent that month. He couldn't pay it. Fortunately for Keith, Keith, his his boss at his part-time job paid the rent in full as a gift, not a loan, just paid it off, and he really appreciated it. One evening in 2002, Keith was reflecting on the kindness of his boss, and on other acts of generosity that had been wonderful for him and had brought him happiness down through life. And like many American Christians, Keith decided, hey, one day, one day when I get rich, I'm going to help other people, right? He says, when I'm really rich, I'm going to start an organization to help the working poor. Then he sees this thought. It occurred to me all of a sudden, he says, that no one who had ever helped me had ever been wealthy. (laughs) They had just been nice. They just had compassion. So Keith decided that he would try to help one person each month who had a financial need. And he set aside $350 in a bank account that he could use for that first month And then he planned to do this month after month. He also set up a a little website where people could apply for help and tell him what their needs were so that he might be able to find people to help. And everything was fine until his website was featured on a popular blog and his plans went out the window because the very next day, in one day, he he received 1,100 emails many of them from people looking for 
someone to meet their needs. But what surprised him was many of those emails were from people who also wanted to give to help people in need. So, a short time later, Keith incorporated a nonprofit organization called Modest Needs. And the organization's first official grant saved a woman's life. She received money for a mammogram that discovered a tumor. And since then, it's been gaining steam. Now fronted by a popular website, modestneeds.org. I checked out the website. By the way, if you are a donor, then you get to vote on the projects, and money is distributed as soon as the money comes in. Taylor's organization gave almost $2.5 million in grants in 2009. $2.5 million. He writes, Every day is another miracle, Keith says. It's beyond my imagination. Every day is another miracle. It's beyond my imagination. Sounds happy, doesn't he? Father, teach us to be happy in you. and To share that happiness with others as we live this life. Help us to center our lives, Lord Jesus, around you and to enjoy your blessings to us, but to share those blessings with others here in our fellowship and around this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, we give you praise. Amen. Hymn number